0: Good evening, everyone. We continue tonight in uh, the letter to the Hebrews. If you haven't had a chance to pick one of these up, uh, I believe we still have a few more and we can get more next week if we run out. Um, But these are simple scripture journals where it is uh, the entire letter to the Hebrews uh, in a journal form so that you can take notes, underline, do all kinds of stuff because we're gonna be journeying through this letter for the entirety of this year. And so we wanna make that very accessible and easy um, for you to keep on your heart and on your mind. Now, as I was processing the passage that we're going to be in today, uh, I was thinking about what some people label, mislabel as useless facts, okay? I know people say these things about things that I say sometimes, but um, I I mean the kinds of things that are about subjects that like come up randomly at like trivia nights. Uh, Those kind of facts that you're like, I really don't know if you're not on Jeopardy, uh, what possible reason you would care to remember those kinds of things. So I'll I'll give you an example um, of one. This is a Disney one. Um, It's uh, that in the earliest design for Disneyland, uh, there was originally supposed to be a church, a chapel off of Main Street USA. It's kind of unique, right? Um, It was on the original design went with the Main Street USA feel and theme, uh, but they ended up making a number of changes to the original, the first design to Disneyland before they broke ground in the early 50s. On, on the park, um, but they actually still honor that part of the legacy and the original entire Disneyland design map. Uh, whenever you watch any movie that came out like, before the Disney 100, they changed up the intro uh, flyover sequence with the castle before any of the Disney movies. If you watch that, it's actually a a rendering of the original Disneyland map uh, come to life uh, in a 3D form, and you'll see a little church there as the flyover happens. And so that's not useless, right? (laughs) Don't answer that. Cool. All right. Now, I know I'm not the only person in the room who, is, who is, has some knowledge banks on a number of subjects that, that other people just don't seem to fully understand the value of. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay. Um, And one of those spaces that can be kind of in that same camp where it's like, it doesn't seem very practical. I don't know what to do with it. So uh, maybe it's only helpful uh, in, in random times in your life. But one of those spaces is theology. Theology, the knowing of things about God. Um, we can easily relegate it to be any one of those realities uh, that only comes up if you are randomly on Jeopardy and it happens to be Bible trivia for some reason. And, uh, and it can feel sometimes that we, uh, that we don't need to know for our everyday lives all that much about God. Now, there are a few reasons for that. One is the level of impact. It doesn't feel like it really impacts my work life, my home life, my, my friend life, my family life, whatever. That's one. Another reason is because maybe you've spent some time uh, maybe in a church context or maybe uh, with a friend or a family member who seemed to know a lot of theology. They knew a lot of things about God, uh, and the way it came across was far less than ideal. It kind of came across as arrogant, heady, uh, unhelpful. um, And it kind of just makes you go, yeah, I, I don't need to know all that much about Jesus then, I guess. Another reason is that we can think about theology a little bit like escargot. Okay. Escargot. Do you guys ever try escargot snails? Have you ever eaten escargot? (gasps) Yeah. You've. No, no, she didn't eat. She didn't eat snails. Okay, all right. So escargot, we all know that that is a food item. Apparently, that some people apparently enjoy. They enjoy eating snails, and so you think for them. Well, I'm glad that they like escargot, but for me, my diet. Um, doesn't have that, those kinds of living things that come from a garden. Uh, unless you're like, maybe you're like on a cruise and it's like served there and, and you're like, they're like daring you and you're like, okay, I'll give it a try. And you take like the smallest little teeniest bite, that was me. Uh, and, uh, and you're like, okay, I tried escargot now, but really that's not my thing. Um, and what I'm getting at in this is that you can think of theology that it really just doesn't matter all that much. It really doesn't matter that I know too much about God. And so for some of us, it can be that extreme, but for others of us, it can be more nuanced. Like you, you learn realities about God, but you don't even, you, maybe it's just that you don't know how they apply to your life. You don't know what you're supposed to do with it. And so it kind of just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And so this is the, what I was considering and pondering and mulling over and meditating on as I opened the letter to Hebrews in the passage that we're going to be in tonight. And so last week we began our journey in Hebrews chapter 1 starting in verse 1. And so I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and reread uh, that introduction uh, and all the way through into chapter or into verse 3 tonight. Now, last week, we began our series considering the circumstances, though, of the original audience, who were most likely Jewish followers of Jesus, uh, who were living within the Rome area, uh, the city of Rome, the capital of the world at that point in time. And these Jewish followers of Jesus were feeling pressure on all ends. They were feeling pressure from their families to return to Judaism, the faith of their fathers. uh, and Or... And they were also experiencing pressure from the Roman authorities who were around them who were beginning to close down their businesses, um, were threatening their safety, destroying their livelihoods, ostracizing them from society. And so for these followers of Jesus, their allegiance to Jesus was costing them greatly. In other words, their theology wasn't just theoretical anymore. It wasn't just uh, a belief without consequence what they believed about god was matter of life and death and so they had to discover what is it that i truly believe why does this matter or should i walk it all back And so when the author begins this letter, he begins with a statement of belief cutting through the cultural pressures, cutting through the uncertainty, and focusing the original audience on the one reality who's like the anchor point in the midst of the chaotic storm world around them. And so that brings us into verse one tonight. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets The Jewish people were inherently theological. Everything about their lives were supposed to be lived in the in the in light of who God is and what He has done for them. That wasn't always the case, but what they had for certain was an understanding that there was comfort and pride, and certainty, and surety in the words that were given by God to the ancient prophets and were passed down through the generations. And so when the author says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, they would have been like, yeah, absolutely. The words of God through the prophets got them through 40 years of desert wanderings. Uh, those words gave them confidence against the constant attacks by, by rivaling nations. At times, it gave them confidence in the midst of incompetent, unjust, unfaithful leadership. The words of God through the prophets got them through exile in foreign nations and through continual occupation and oppression that just kept going year after year after year. These people were battered and bruised, and yet they had the word of, the, the word of God through the prophets. And what they believed about God in light of what the prophets had shared with them mattered greatly to the people of Israel. It was the ultimate remembrance to call back to remember that we can trust that God is faithful because he rescued our people out of Egypt. We can trust that he is slow to anger because he has been patient with our people in the midst of our continual rebellion. We can trust that he is just because although he's been patient, he has patience does not know no end to the extent that he is willing to even allow us to experience justice by turning us over to foreign powers. That they could trust that he was steadfast to his promises that although he turned them over to foreign powers, what he didn't do was fully abandon them and completely neglect his promises. Instead, he would be steadfast to his promises one day sending the Messiah, the anointed one who would come to rescue a people in desperate need. And so the people of Israel were constantly being reminded with each holiday season, even throughout the Jewish calendar of occurrences time and time and time again, where God demonstrated who he is through what he has done for his people. And so the question for the Jewish followers of Jesus at this moment, in this place is, and what about now? What about now? should they listen to the words of Jesus or should they return back to the words from God spoken through the prophets and the prophets alone? And so the author immediately takes us into this theological deep dive into who is the son. Now, I imagine for most of us, especially in light of the songs that we have sung thus far tonight, uh, you have this image of who this son, but what I want us to do right now is kind of wipe our memory clean for a moment so that we can build a theology of who is the son along with the author. And so he says that God has spoken now in these last days to us by his son. So tell me, author, about this son. What's he like? Well, funny you should ask. First, he is... The one who is appointed the heir of all things. To be an heir is to be an owner, to be in the line of succession. See, inheritances in the ancient world weren't just about bank accounts being transferred over to your name or property coming into your name. It clarified to the world that when it comes to anything to do, with whatever you have jurisdiction over, that you have absolute authority over it to protect it, to cultivate it, to utilize what you possess in the way that you think necessary. Now you might be thinking, well, that feels kind of obvious. Exactly. And so when the author would have heard this, now all religious Jews would have been able to agree on one core reality at least. And it is this. That Yahweh, the name that, that they revered as the name of God, that Yahweh was the creator and owner of everything. That feels biblical, right? That Yahweh, God, is the creator and owner of everything. Now, we could kind of almost take that for granted a little bit because that doesn't sound odd in terms of the Bible, even if we maybe didn't grow up around the church. It's like, yeah, if there's a God then it, and he created everything, then it's all kind of his in a way, right? True, but this would have been very different than what any of the rival nations would have ever believed. Now, Around the nation of Israel, around the Jewish people, and around now this new Christian movement, they are surrounded and enmeshed in polytheistic cultures, meaning that they believed that there wasn't one God, but there's a diversity of God's. And this would have been the case for thousands of years, going back all the way into the original uh, enslavement to the Egyptians. The Egyptians, the Moabites, the Romans, uh, the, uh, the Babylonians over and over and over again believed that there was a multitude of gods. And that would have affected your understanding of who has authority, who has jurisdiction over different parts of life. So, for example, in Roman theology, they would have believed that Neptune, uh, Greek uh, is named Poseidon, is the god of the seas and horses. Odd combination, but he created both of those realities, and so, therefore, he has jurisdiction over both of those realities. And you would go on and on and on with the entire pantheon of gods. And so that's what everyone would have known, that... There's a diversity of creators and those diversity of creators have the jurisdiction, the ownership rights over all these things. But the Jews, the Jews were different. They were weird because they believed that there was not a plurality of gods, a multitude of gods. They believed that there was one God who whose name was revered, Yahweh. And Yahweh is the creator and sustainer of all things. And therefore, because he's a creator and sustainer of all things, then he has the natural, rightful, ownership rights of all things now and forever. That makes sense, right? Except this word son gets thrown in here. And that word wasn't created by the author of Hebrews or even in the Gospels. It comes from Daniel, one of the ancient prophets that God spoke to the people through. And he receives a vision from Yahweh. And this in, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And he said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with a cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. So, You have two characters being stated here. There is the Son of Man and there's Ancient Days. Ancient Days is another way to say Yahweh. So you have Yahweh on the throne and there's another one, this one that is referred to as the Son of Man. Now you could think, who is this person? It's probably just some really spiritual dude, maybe King David, maybe somebody like that, some really cool person, hence Son of Man. But then it gets odd in this prophecy, a way that if you're Jewish, you might even question whether or not it's proper theology. And it says, and to him, this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. Wait, what? That's transferring of ownership rights. How does this work? And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Okay, that's different. Everlasting, King David died at some point. So how, how do you have an everlasting dominion if you're just a human? Which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So how could Yahweh, this ancient of days, possibly give dominion to this son of man? That doesn't make sense with anything that you would have understood by just hearing the words of the prophets. You'd been like, okay, so this character is clearly referring to this Messiah, this anointed, this long-awaited one, but they didn't even know how to put these, reconcile these, these, these uh, paradoxical prophecies together. But it makes a little bit more sense if the next part is true And back in Hebrews. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, if you remember last week or the song that we sang a, a few minutes ago, this might remind you of something that John recorded in his gospel account when he's when he's talking about the, the logos, the, the voice of God, the word of God He said in the beginning was the word and this this word was with God and this word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, meaning the word. And without the word was not anything made that was made. In other words, this word is a really big deal. And as we talked about last week, though, God created through this word, through this logos, through this voice. And it is that very same voice who had become wrapped up in human flesh. And in that, he becomes the son of man. Because the voice of God became the son of man. God is now experienceable. We aren't just thinking things, are we? It's not just, I think, therefore I am. It's not just, uh, I compute or I download information and then I discover the world. We don't just get knowledge implanted into us. We have to learn it. We have to experience it. We experience everything. Our senses are alive so that we can sense the things around us. Right now in this room, we are experiencing one another in a multitude of ways, small or big, sharing the same oxygen, kind of weird, but it's a thing that we do as humans. We've been doing it since the beginning. Uh, we are, right now, you are hearing my voice, and so you are experiencing my voice. When you walked in here, hopefully you were greeted by somebody and you experienced a greeting. Maybe you saw somebody that you know, and they gave you a hug and you experienced the warm embrace. We are experience-focused creatures. We are created for experience. But in so many ways, it can be difficult to understand a direct cause-effect relationship in in the reality of experiencing God which is why our theology can feel like it's some obscure, trivial knowledge. Until God became flesh. See, in the Son of Man, we discover the one who is, as the author in Hebrews writes it next, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. So the language here in Greek is supposed to um, bring to our hearts and to our minds the the thought of a sun and its rays. You can't go and touch a sun easily, right? But we experience the sun all the time. In fact, if the sun were to go out, it wouldn't just be, oh man, it's dark now. (laughs) Scientists have said, what happens when a star goes boom? And that's not good for anything, but we can definitely experience it in tangible ways through its rays. Have you ever been out and it's like super cold, and I don't just mean forty three degrees, although that is pretty cold when our when we when we're living in Florida, but like like you're like out snowboarding or skiing or playing in the snow or something? you're someplace else where those things are things that people talk about uh, and and you're out there and you're so cold and it's like cloud covered and then all of a sudden. Uh, the cloud bre- the cloud cover breaks and you start getting the sun. And it doesn't mean that it's all warm, but just the sun beams hitting you. It's just like, yes, I'll take all those rays right now. Also, can you thaw out my hands? I can't feel them anymore. And this is the language that the author of Hebrews is being led by the spirit of God to describe Jesus, this sun, that we experience God's glory as if the rays of the sun through this Son, And so if you want to know what the unknowable, unfathomable, difficult to experience Yahweh is like, you look to the radiance of his glory, the son of man. And which the author is going to press into in a deeper way when he proclaims the next, the next, the next phrase. He says, who is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Speaking of uh, very useful Disney facts, uh, this is one that I used to do and I used to love sharing when I was on tour. Uh, If you visited Liberty Square at Magic Kingdom in front of the Hall of Presidents, there is an object out there that is a bell. Now, this bell you might look at and say, wow, that looks just like the Liberty Bell. In reality, it is an exact replica of the Liberty Bell. Uh, And what I mean by that is that Disney wasn't like, we want for Liberty Square, it makes sense for us to have uh, the Liberty Bell. So let's go ahead and send some artists up there. They'll draw it. They'll sketch it. They'll take some pictures. They'll measure it. They'll do all these things. And then they'll give it a go. What Disney did do is they were able to actually contract to be able to borrow the original mold for the actual Liberty Bell. And they were able to cast a mold using the exact same metal, the same type of metal, so that they could cast an exact replica of the Liberty Bell. It's kind of cool, but it's also a reminder of what an exact replica is. And so when it's, the author is saying here, he's the exact imprint of his nature. What he is saying is he is like the bell cast from the mold. Like, you know what this thing is? because you can now see it. And when you see it, it's not a, well, that's kind of like, it reminds me of God. It's no, when you see my face, you see the father. That if you are confused about the character and nature of God, Jesus was saying then, if you are scratching your head, how how can a good God allow so much suffering to be on earth? If you're wondering if he cares for little old you, you look to the son of man and you watch the way he lived life, and you see the way that he experienced people and the way that people experienced him, you watch him carefully. And if you watch the son of man carefully, you're going to discover the nature of Yahweh. And so all of this is to bring our hearts and to bring our minds to this idea that in the son of man, it's not that you are experiencing a metaphor for Yahweh. It's that you are experiencing God in the flesh, the very word of God dwelling with people. Now, this next part, this next sentence, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This one's super interesting and it brought me back to the Ro- uh, Roman mythology because in the in Roman mythology there was a being whose name was Atlas. And Atlas was one of the Titans. So he wasn't uh, a god, he was a Titan who were kind of like the gods before the gods, it's a whole thing. Um there's a rebellion. It's weird stuff. But but Because of Atlas's rebellion with the rest of the Titans, he was given a special punishment by Zeus, who is known as Jupiter in Roman mythology. And he was made to bear the weight of the entire cosmos on his shoulders. And this was a punishment. And on his shoulders would rest all the weight of life. And on his shoulders would be no enjoyment. would be no pleasure for himself. It would be a constant torment for all of existence that this is what he has done and this is his consequence. And so it's odd that this author is now going to use similar language that he upholds the universe, but not because he was punished to do it, not by straining with difficulty, but by the word of his power. See, the son of man carries the weight of the cosmos, not on his shoulders, not under some loathsome burden or heavy pressure, but with the simple word of his power. It's giving the image that this son is so far beyond anything we could possibly comprehend. And he he literally breathes out the power of it, of life. And so we're getting this image that this robust son of man is something really special. You could imagine, or we could say that it's not that he's just better than the word of the prophets. It's that he is wholly different than anything the prophets could have ever dreamt toward. And so who is the son of man? Who is Yahweh's voice and residence of human flesh? Another one of Jesus's apostle disciples, a guy named John, had gone to receive a vision that would be recorded in uh, the Revelation of John in chapter one. And in it, John is is swept up in a vision into the throne room of God, and he turns to see the voice of who is speaking to him. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand was one like a son of man See, the Son of Man isn't just a better prophet. He's not just the next iteration. He is the fulfillment of what every prophecy was pointing toward. And so when we look at the Son of Man, we know now who we're talking about, whether you trust or believe in him or not. It's clear that it's pointing us to King Jesus, that Jesus is the culmination of our theology. That he is the assurance of God in a world filled with uncertainty. That he is God's presence in the flesh, gentle and lowly of heart in a world filled with suffering and abuse. That he is patient and kind in a world that spits you out when you mess up. That he is just and fierce in a world filled with evil and brokenness that it is through him that all things were created. And that because of that, he is the rightful heir, that he is the owner of everything, that all things were created through him. And if those things are true, then he alone can warrant your hope. Nothing else can warrant your hope. If that is true, if it's not true, then good luck. If it is true, then it's the only thing that matters then no other created thing that we could put our hope in, our next vacation, our money, our retirement account, our relationships, our spouses, our children, whatever. Nothing else deserves to have our hope because he alone created and owns all things. He is the only one who has the right to judge because he gave himself up to be judged on by his own creation. And not because he had to, not because he was pulled by the ear to, but because he joyfully and sorrowfully submitted himself to God's plan because of his extravagant, passionate love. See, this is King Jesus and he is not mere theology. He is not mere head knowledge. He is not just something to know for a trivia. He is not just something to know about so that you don't go to hell, but instead you go to heaven. If you have never met him, his desire is for you to experience life in him, to experience him to the full, to experience his delight and to delight in him. This is what you were created to do in the first place. And if you're like me and you just had a week where he felt distant, and that's true for me, what about you? If it feels like he is distant, what I know biblically is he is not moved. He has not moved. He has journeys with us and he desires for us to experience life with him. But that happens as we draw near and abide to him. And that's good news because King Jesus is not just theology. <laughs> he is theology with legs. <laughs> he is God in the flesh. Which means that in a world of uncertainty and confusion and chaos, Jesus being God offers us an anchor point that is beyond anything we could ever hope for or imagine. And if you're thinking about the original Jewish followers of Jesus who were receiving this exact word, they weren't wondering. What they weren't wondering anymore as they are going through this letter is, but like what if it's all false? Because if they could anchor their hope in Jesus, they were anchoring their hope to the one who does not change. That even if everything around them was pressing in, even if they were to lose their own life in the Roman Colosseum within the next decade, as many of them undoubtedly would have experienced. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. I get Jesus. And Jesus, if he is not only the owner of all things, but in him and through him, all things were created, that then he is what it's all about. And to be united with him for eternity, that that is good news beyond anything we could understand. Definitely beyond anything we can appreciate on our own. And so the question is, will we look at King Jesus with fresh eyes? because we we all have some vision of who Jesus is. Uh some of it biblical, some of it uh taught to us by somebody else, some of it from pop culture, some some of it from a number of spaces. But Jesus is the one who we were created for. And this reminds me of uh John the Baptist when he sent the word he sent word through one of his disciples to Jesus wondering like are you the one are you the messiah are you the one that we cuz he's in prison at this point and he's about to lose his life and he's like have I wasted my life which is a fair question have I wasted my life I imagine none of us want to die and say, think man I wasted my life and so Jesus sends word back and says the kingdom is advancing the good news is being preached to the poor. The blind are receiving sight. These things are happening because the Son of Man has arrived. Just like what John needed to hear, that's what these Jewish followers of Jesus need to hear. And that's just what we need to hear. Whether we need to hear this tonight or we need to hold this in our heart to hear it another day and to be reminded of by somebody else. He is the bread of life. He is the one who can take our doubts, our griefs, our fears. And so whatever you're facing right now, mental health crisis, physical difficulties, fear about the unknowns of the future, whatever it is, we have a God who is big enough to handle it. And so I want to invite the band to come on up. And I want to give us a moment right now to simply spend a moment with God. Process with him whatever he might be laying on your heart. Maybe journal about it. Uh, whatever it is, if God is putting something on your heart, and I don't want you to miss this moment, miss this opportunity to process this with him. Because King Jesus, guys, he loves you so much. He wants you to experience life with him. He wants you to abide. So let's take a moment to simply pray in our hearts and I'll close this in prayer. we need you. God, it's often I don't understand how or why I need you and especially not how desperately I need you. I don't want beliefs about you that are untrue. And I don't want beliefs about you that don't spur me on to know you deeper. And I don't think my brothers and sisters in this room tonight want that either. They want to experience life with you. They want to experience flourishing in you. They want to experience an intimate relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would experience that. That we would experience you. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for sustaining our every breath. Lord, where there is pain tonight, would you bring comfort by your presence? Where there is uh, difficulty, would you meet with comfort? Where there is excitement, in celebration.